Ah, there's Rory. Hello there. We're all here. Hello. Fantastic. That's good. I adore I, I, Rory because he actually got a review of my book into a British newspaper or magazine, which is very rare. Thank you, Rory. It's a pleasure because what I can't understand, I don't understand the people who edit book review pages because, as I said, someone writes a sort of four-volume biography of Madame de Pompadour, which right. no one's going to read, and they're all right. over it for some reason. And yet you write a really well, useful because they studied they, they studied literature at university and they're trying to pretend it's equivalent to an engineering or a law degree, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely right. And you you're in Vancouver, John, are you? No, I'm in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, right, okay. Yes. Just yes, a coastline away. Yeah, that's right. So listen, oh, you're on that post puffer again. Yeah, yeah. Can't go without it. Really? <laughs> All right, off you go. Welcome everyone, new listeners and old, to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast for curious, nosy people like you who want to understand what's going on between our ears and why we behave as we do. Excuse the frog in my throat. Cough, cough. Now, today is a very special episode and one that I've been looking forward to recording and sharing for months. Now, since launching this podcast, it's been my ambition to interview John Cleese in part because he has plenty of no BS clear thinking on what it means to be creative. You would have thought so for the man who co-wrote Monty Python and Faulty Towers, and in part because he is my comedy hero, which is a bit gushing, I know, but since I'm the host of this podcast, I'll say what I like. Now, John's writing of Basil Fawlty in particular has had me enraptured since I first watched it in the 1980s, and if you ask anyone who knows me well, they'll tell you possibly with an air of resignation that I am rather obsessed, both by the brilliance of the writing and the panoply of characters, but also the excess of Basil, his fire, his fury and his rage. As far as today goes, instead of just interviewing John, I thought I'd add an extra shot of brandy to the conversation and invite behavioural science's very own flamethrowing alchemist Rory Sutherland, who also knows a thing or two about creativity. So here we have John Cleese and Rory Sutherland talking about creativity in play, and me holding onto the reins with a fairly relaxed grip. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, and by the way, my name's Daniel Ross, if you were in any doubt. John and Rory, welcome to A Load of BS. What a treat to have you both join me for an atter. It is. This is a very important experience for you. But, <laughs> yes, you're quite right. It is, in fact, a moment I'm hugely excited about. I've been looking forward to... You will remember this, Daniel, on your deathbed. Well, well I, I hope so, if that's possible. But you'll you... think my miserable, meanest experience was all right, okay. Wasn't yeah, okay exactly. Maybe it may rank slightly lower on your uh, hit list of greater life experiences, but I'll take that. <laughs> now, look, I, be, I have to. I have been looking forward to having this conversation for months. Of course, John, your diary is so amazingly transatlantic, if a diary can possibly be given such praise, that I thought might have better probability of pinning down the Pope, so to speak, than bringing us all together. But here we are, which is wonderful. Now, John, you seem to be burning the creative candle at both ends, as we were just saying through our tech struggle on the other line. I mean, are you doing more as you get older? 
I'm doing more writing as I get older because there isn't much performing because of COVID and audiences. You know, I've done shows in Dubai Opera House and at the Star Theatre in Singapore. I was planning then to go on to um, Bangkok and do some shows there. And then they got cancelled at 48 hours notice. So I kind of thought, well, where can I go that's warm? And I thought I have two nice daughters in LA. So I've been here for a couple of months. But basically what I'm doing is writing been writing songs for the musical A Fish Called Wanda, and I've totally rewritten Life of Brian, not as a musical, but as a straight play, and we're having a read-through in New York on Monday. So things are moving at last. It's fantastic. So today we're going to talk about subjects that are close to both your hearts, that's creativity and play, and these are concepts or frames of mind which I think are really central to both your being. So I thought it would be fascinating, entertaining, and unpredictable to reunite you guys and riff on the subjects from the point of view of a writer-actor and advertising man. I hope you know who I'm referring to in each case. There shouldn't be too much confusion, although there may be some overlap. I mean, Rory, would you call yourself an actor at times in what you do? I'm a performer, yeah. I mean, I yes, occasionally... Yes. I occasionally a great performer. Great performer. I, I occasionally scandalise people in the advertising industry by saying that 30% of our business is effectively we're in the B2B entertainment industry, and they get very upset about it. But I said, look, part of our job is just to make a meeting with an advertising agency more interesting than a meeting with a management consultancy. And well, the bar is fairly, fairly low for that. I yes, that is. It is setting the bar very, very low. I agree. I suppose, you know, discussion of logistics or business process re-engineering would be right at the <laughs> bottom, I suspect. But yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, they are sort of recipes for some insomnia. Now, because you've both written relatively recent books about creativity, which I'm sure will reference. Rory, you wrote Alchemy, the Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. John, you wrote Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide, which indeed it is. And I must say, John, that I found something extremely pleasing in its brevity and simplicity. And it ends actually rather suddenly without a conclusion or summary, which I also liked. It felt a very sort of confident full stop. When you're dealing with creativity, you simply can't lay down hard and fast rules. So the literal-minded want to be told exactly what to do, and that's not what creativity is about. Creativity is about creating the right circumstances for your naturally creative unconscious to cooperate with you. How do you think of that, Rory? Perfect, yeah. I occasionally describe it as the art of distracting yourself. <laughs> this is why, by the way, the process is maddening to people who look on it from outside, because it seems to me almost woefully inefficient. Yes. And there, was, there was actually an extraordinary case where someone asked Seinfeld whether he'd thought of getting management consultants in to improve the efficiency of show production, to which yeah. Seinfeld replied, he said, a McKinsey funny, and the interview said... <laughs> No. And he said, in which case, why would I possibly bring them in? Which is a fair point. And, and you see, I think, Daniel, there's an automatic built-in feud between the money people who want clarity. They want to know what happens on what date and how much. And the creative people, because the two characteristics of creative people, and the research says this, I'm thinking of McKinnon, Rory. The creative people take longer to make their decisions than non-creative people. And when they're doing that, they just play. And people who can play can allow themselves to be advised by their unconscious, which is where all the best ideas come from. And if you don't allow yourself to play, you can be frightfully good at logic and strict meaning of words and all that stuff and very good at figures. But if you can't play, you'll never be creative. You may be brilliant, but you won't be creative. Well, I think this you raised sort of one of the central challenges that as adults, we just sort of have to find ways to try and artificially temper the tendencies of our rather overdeveloped 
sort of prefrontal cortex to be sort of rigid and task driven. We need to lose inhibition. We need to be more childlike and in a way sort of irresponsible. And the sort of yes, question is, is how, how on earth do we do that? This basic research done by a guy called Donna McKinnon described this ability to play as childlike, not childish, but childlike. And if you watch kids play, you can't say you're playing wrongly. (laughs) That's not how you play, because that's not how it works. It's done on rigid rules. It's a playful process because you don't know what you're doing and you don't know where you're going. And this drives the money people crazy because they want it all laid out. I'll give you a very simple example. When we were making Fish Called Wanda, I said to them, I want 10 days of rehearsal. And the accountant said, well, we can't afford it. And I said, so when you've got an important creative decision to take, you'd like that to be taken with 40 members of the crew standing around not doing anything rather than just in a small group gathered together beforehand. And the answer is that the people who deal with the figures don't understand the process. And they don't understand that they don't understand the process. So there's always a kind of fight between people who want clarity and creative people who aren't frightened by confusion, because confusion is the thing from which fresh ideas usually emerge. No, I think there's this dangerous tendency with very kind of deterministic reductionist people that they want to remove uncertainty as quickly as possible. And they'll variously do things like pretending it away or ignoring (laughs) or choosing the average between two contradicting variables. And the ability to comfortably function while toying around with an inherent contradiction and then waiting for the unconscious mind to resolve that contradiction in some unexpected and oblique way is necessarily a kind of annoying behavior to anybody outside. Because, of course, one of the reasons I think business decisions become very boring is that it's very easy for the purposes of holding meetings. The easiest thing to do is to work out what is the lowest common denominator frame of reference among your immediate peer group. And you immediately all share that particular mental frame on the problem because it makes things very easy. You don't look weird. I always said that it's, it's impossible being a creative person in a board meeting because yeah. a bunch of people will say, we have this product, it's not selling very well, so we're going to reduce the price. Standard economic framework. And everybody nods along and there's no real further need to question it. And I'm sitting at the end and I go, I want to say, have you thought about making it pink and putting the price up? But I know that in that setting, you can't say that without effectively committing a faux pas. You're not supposed to think obliquely in that kind of collective setting. It's very odd. You see, when I was working for the BBC, I was working at the best possible time because they were confident. And when people are confident, they'll trust their own judgment. So that works. When people are anxious, they don't want to make a mistake. So they want safety in numbers, because if 16 people make the decision, you can't fire them all. Do you see what I mean? So they go for the immediately acceptable conventional solution because they know that keeps their jobs safe. Whereas the more creative people, if they're confident, could be trying something which they know might be a mistake because they've never done it before. When you have a brand new idea, you've got to test it and see if it works. But you've got to be prepared for the test to say, no, this doesn't work. And if you're frightened of that because you might get sacked, you'll never come up with anything creative. So, John, how did you discover your own creativity, your own style? 
Well, I was at Cambridge and I got into Cambridge on uh, science, math, physics, chemistry, and I switched to law because I discovered that I wasn't interested in science. And then I had this awful realization that most of the people coming up to Cambridge to study science were interested in science. I thought that gave them an unfair advantage. So I said, what else can I do? And they said, not much but uh, you're good with words, so you can do law. And that meant that I didn't discover any creativity until I was 22. I mean, when I was 15, a teacher told me to write an essay on time, and I knew it's practically impossible to express time in words. So I wrote a whole essay about the fact that I hadn't had the time to write the essay, and the last line was an apology for not writing the essay. And the guy wasn't amused at all. You see, you were nodding, and he thought that's quite amusing. The guy just said, this isn't a proper essay. He wasn't used to the idea of anything that wasn't absolutely conventional. Well, it sort of leads me to say that I must say, you know, John, that your comedy, specifically in Faulty Towers, has been without question, continues to be a great source of creative inspiration to me. And I'm not just saying that it's damn funny, which of but course why? it is. Well, I think why? it's absurdity. It's it's maniacal rage. It's irreverence. It's almost say it's tragedy. It's absolutely just sort of embedded. I mean, actually, I, I must say that barely a day goes when a line or a dialogue doesn't pop into my head. It always reminds me one of my sort of favorite work moments is with calls with difficult clients followed by the line in my head, please try and understand before one of us dies. Um, always felt it was sort of uh, always very, very appropriate. Well, it's kind of playful. I mean, it's done it with an intense emotional charge, but it is fundamentally playful and I'm yeah. glad it helps. Well, let me answer, try and answer your question about why, because it's, it reminds me also a little of, sort of Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm, because however objectionable Basil is, or indeed at times Larry is, there's a small part of one which fantasizes about being him now and again, just to sort of let it all out. It's somehow rather liberating. I mean, was part of writing Basil a fantasy of living one's life, spewing whatever came to mind rather than adhering to social norms? I don't think it really was. It was just a very simple question of trying to write farces based around this particular guy's characteristics, which was that he was a hotelier who's supremely unqualified to be a hotelier. And everything that you're supposed to do in hotels, he more or less did the opposite. But because he was always stressed and not able to think clearly because he was so frightened of his wife, you see, if he'd had a nice wife, he would have come out as an absolutely awful character. But you kind of knew he was always so uptight because he was frightened of his wife. So there was a certain sympathy for him. But where did all that repressed rage and envy and anger come from in you? Did it was it the lower middle class in England? Okay. That's why everyone identifies with him in a funny kind of way. He was actually based on a real life character, wasn't he? A hotelier who'd yeah, been a former merchant seaman. Yeah, that we yeah. stayed in, and, and he was just a wonderfully mad guy. But I think the essence of this conversation is what is, why don't we use the unconscious more? And I think there's three reasons. One is we're not told to when we're being educated. Two is we've no idea how powerful it is and how much it will do for us. And three, when it comes up with great stuff, it's not typed out neatly on a piece of paper. It comes to us in the language of the unconscious, which is dreams and images. Right, Rory? Yeah. And also it's post-rationalized rather than pre-rationalized. Yes, that's right. You can only explain it in retrospect. And I yes. think... I think there's a fundamental problem in that there are literally a hundred times more ideas that you can post-rationalize than there are good ideas you can actually pre-rationalize, arrive at by some sequential rational process. And yet the requirement of most business activity now is for everything to be justified in advance. And that limits the solution set enormously. 
And actually, comedy, of course, is a mechanism for resolving contradiction, I guess, in some Yes, way. that's true. That's true. But if you try to do something original, you're going to take the risk of making a mistake. But if you stay doing exactly the same thing, which appears to be safe, then you will be overtaken and destroyed by someone who's more creative than you are. And the other thing is that people don't understand the extraordinary power of the unconscious. I mean, the experiment, which I think shows that better than anything else, is some psychologists got together and they showed a group of people, Chinese ideograms, you know what I mean, characters. And then they came back a few days later and they said, we're going to show you some you saw last week and some new ones. Tell us which ones you saw last week. They just couldn't do it. It was just chance. They had no chance of remembering at all. Then they repeated the experiment on the second time when they came back. They said, we're going to show you some we saw last week. So we want you to tell us which ones you kind of like a bit better. You look, some of them, you think, mm, don't particularly like that. Oh, I like that one. And the ones they liked were the ones they'd seen. Now, that meant that the unconscious was able to identify what they'd seen, but it couldn't tell the people concerned in words. You had to tease it out. Yeah. And the greatest of all the Renaissance experts in art, Bernard Berenson, he never was wrong about this. When he was asked if a painting was a fake or not, he used to feel a bit ill if it was. Let me ask, how do we tap into this unconscious? What's the process for both of you, whether it's in writing or indeed copywriting or creative direction? How do you tap into that and escape sort of a business process conformity and convention? Well, I've, I've got a simple answer, which is why can children play and adults not? And the answer is because adults are minding the shop. So you have to get in a situation where you're not minding the shop for a period of time. So you want to get in a room or somewhere in a park where you can just sit there without anyone interrupting you because interruptions are fatal. And for a period of time, you disconnect from your ordinary everyday life and that enables you to play. Rory? I buy that. It's not a question of having available time. It's having available contiguous long swathes of time. Yes. Because you can't do it in between doing the day job. Exactly. It's got to be separate. There was a book called Homo Ludens that I read years ago, and it said play has to be separate from ordinary life because when you're preoccupied with the tasks and duties and responsibilities and worries of ordinary life, you're not in touch with your unconscious. You have to sit down like meditation, let the mind settle a bit, and after 15 or 20 minutes, you will come up with ideas. Now, not necessarily good ones, but later on at the end of the session, you can examine it with your logical critical faculties and think that one won't fly, but this one might. And I wonder with both of you, there are periods when you're able to produce brilliant work in what we might call a sort of a system one frame of mind by which I mean, you get flow very quickly, ideas come unconsciously, almost automatically without too much analysis and introspection. I think you have to accept the inverted commas wasted time mm. is actually integral to the process. I don't think there's a way of actually eliminating that. I mean, might, you know, you could argue that drugs might do it. Like Coleridge and Kublai Khan or something. Yeah, um, yeah, but I don't think you can necessarily hasten the process. I mean, there's a very, very interesting thing I've always looked at in terms of how bees order themselves, in that not all bees obey the waggle dance. And so you have this information on where you can get nectar and pollen, and it seems foolish to disregard this information. So, But nonetheless, 20% of bees, or at least 20% of bee journeys, involve kind of going off at random. 
And this didn't make much sense when people looked at it until they realized that unless you have the random bees to offset the obedient bees, you become over-optimized on what you already know. And it's a kind of incremental progress at best. And you need the random bees. Most of their journeys are a waste of time. But one time in a hundred, they get, or one time in a thousand, they get really lucky. And they discover a completely new burst of flowers in a field that no one had visited before. And it also protects you against becoming over-optimized on your existing environment so that if your current best crop of flowers happens to die out or get eaten by cows, you know somewhere else to go. So it also defragilizes you. But it always occurred to me that if bees had personalities, you know, who's to say? <laughs> okay, right. But the obedient bees would despise the random bees, wouldn't they? Still <laughs> They're completely essential to the survival of the hive. And they're also extraordinarily valuable in terms of one in a hundred of their efforts just delivers massive amounts of pay dirt. And yet you can just imagine that bee accountants would regard those bees as basically in an entirely dilettante and wasteful. And I think the point is the wasted journeys there are part of the process. It's actually an essential part of the process. It's sometimes called the exploit-explore trade-off. We're in AI and animal foraging. They have this concept of the exploit-explore trade-off. You've got to exploit what you know. That would yeah. be absolutely daft to discover a new field full of flowers and not tell anyone about it or not return. But nonetheless, you've got to have a certain amount of investment in random exploration. And because it comes with a higher incidence of failure, yes. it tends to get discarded. But the value lies in the fact that the successes effectively pay for all the failures several times over. Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful analogy. So I was very helped with Robin Skinner. I wrote a couple of books with this therapist called Rob. And he said that Gregory Bateson had once said that uh, you have to get rid of a bad idea before you can have a good one. Or maybe he said you've got to get rid of an old idea before you can have a new one. And therefore, I think of the process of being creative as a little bit like when you're eating, you can't just say, well, the good bit is the bit where the food is coming up on the fork to the mouth, but the bad waste of time is the fork going back down because you don't get any food out of that. In other words, the whole thing is a process. It's almost a circular process, and you have to have one if you're going to have the other. Otherwise, you just get stuck in a uniformity and more creative people zoom past you. Yeah, you have to accept the meandering, enjoy the process and not over-engineer. I mean, in parallel... And not worry too much if nothing happens, because what, Graham Chapman and I, when we started on Python, on the bad days, we used to get upset with ourselves. And if you begin to realize it's just part of a cycle, and what helped us was to realize that we could average 15 to 17 and a half minutes of good material if we work five days a week. But it never came in equal chunks. One day it would all flow and then you might have two bad days. But because you knew there was average there, if you sat there in the long run, it all worked out fine. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. Now, before we continue, I must mention my sponsor, Crankwheel. How many times have you asked people if they can see your screen or hear your voice on Zoom calls? Or had to spend 10 minutes while the other person figures out how to connect? Well, with Crankwheel, you can instantly share your screen and monitor engagement, project HD videos, or even grant control to the other person. 
Crankwheel is used by sales teams in solar, insurance, digital marketing and finance, amongst other industries. And it's just great for onboarding new customers, particularly to reduce churn rates. You simply share a link during a phone call and the other person enters on any browser, any device without registration or installation. Now, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now on with the show. I presume on occasion, you know, something that you might have put on the scrap heap on the basis of working in partnership is then derived into something rather unexpected. That, again, is all part of the pleasure in the process. That's right. I mean, sometimes we'd read something out when we got together at the Pythons every few days and read stuff, and sometimes we'd say, this isn't really right yet, but we think there's something in it. We'd read it out of the group, and the group would make suggestions. But as Leroy says, it's all about not minding making mistakes. And let me just ask you both in your professions, I mean, what's the balance then between sort of ego and partnership? You referenced Graham as your kind of key writing partner. Does play happen alone or is it typically better done in teams or both? There's the mutual sounding board thing, which accelerates things, I think. And there's also, I think, the chance where the purpose of a creative team in advertising is to create a third person who's better than either of you. Part of it might be just slightly accelerating the process of selection, but also, if I'm right, the dead parrot sketch started with a man returning a toaster, if I'm right. No, no, returning a car. It was a car, I see. So it was a bad surface sketch, and then you knew there was something in it, that it was an inherently recognisable state of affairs, but then someone... (laughs) I mean... Why, I mean, why parrot? You can never answer that question. Well, well, I said to Gray, all right, it's not going to be a car. What is it? And we suddenly thought it's it's something alive. It's a pet. And we said, well, what sort of a pet? And we thought, well, you know, dog. If you, we talk about dog being dead, people are going to be upset. Same with a cat. And a mouse wouldn't work either because a dear little mouse. And we said, so we suddenly thought, well, what about a parrot? Nobody likes parrots. Nobody gives a fuck about parrots. So it became a dead parrot. <laughs> because it wasn't upset anyone. Are you both fascinated and by and sort of get a great kick out of the absurd and sort of by association, I suppose, our own absurdity as human beings? Is that fair in different yeah, ways? Absolutely. I mean, we are ridiculous creatures, and people who start from any other point um, have missed the point. You know, we no idea why we're here. As I think it's Heidegger who says, we're just thrown in the midst of life. You know, we're not given a rule book saying this is how you're supposed to do with your life. And we don't know what we're doing. And some of us are trying to find out what the meaning is, and the others of us want to have a bigger car. And there's a mixture of everyone, but it's a, it's, it's just fun. It's just play. And it's not, above all, it's not taking things too seriously. I mean, what I notice, if you have humor, it makes very self-important people uncomfortable because it's very, very hard to maintain a phony ego in an atmosphere of fun and relaxation. You want solemnity. If you go, can you imagine anybody laughing around Putin? John, remind me, what was the great joke you made at Graham's funeral, which sort of burst that bubble of solemnity? Do you know what I'm referring well, that to? Was, yes, that was playing with the idea that there was another side to Graham, which was not perfect. And the funny thing about, you know, they say never speak ill of the dead. It always seems to me it's the ideal opportunity, you know, to settle a few scores uh, because they can't argue. But what I found there was that saying things that people who knew Graham were true about Graham, 
in the right package was a way of telling the truth in a way that was humorous and therefore acceptable. This is about having the right attitude to mistakes is all important. I want to hear Rory on that. Well, there's also a quality which is the fear of the obvious. Dave Trott, wonderful guy, actually, advertising guy, he always makes the point that most people in a corporate setting have a love of the obvious because it yeah. requires very little justification. And if the obvious goes wrong, you don't get into much trouble for it. You're not exposed to very much blame. Good, very good. They don't want to cast unknowns anywhere because no. if they cast a film as a complete disaster and it's unknowns, they'll get blamed. But if they were famous stars, everyone will say, well, yes, obviously you had so-and-so and so-and-so, so just bad luck. Exactly that, yeah. So you can effectively, if you go with the flow of defaults, your exposure to blame and recrimination is much, much lower. And the one thing I noticed that's common in all creative people is they have, if they're asked to deliver a funeral oration, they'll immediately respond by going, well, I'm obviously expected to deliver this eulogy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> okay. Right. And now what you don't do, where the humor is a resolution of the contradiction, is it's not nasty. Okay. No. It's actually highly affectionate, but it's not maintaining that sort of totally bogus pretense of yeah. perfection on the part of the deceased. And so you result, you know, you could get that completely wrong in, you know, in the other direction. Okay. <laughs> I mean, conceivably. <laughs> This is my feeling about the woke people as they don't understand that some teaching can be horrible and nasty and unforgivable and hurtful, and we just shouldn't do it. And a lot of teasing is entirely affectionate and is about saying, oh, you've lost a bit of hair, or you put on a bit of weight, or you later get all that kind of gentle, affectionate teaching, which is actually a bonding mechanism. It's a sign of friendship and closeness, I yeah, think, when you're exactly. able to take the piss out of someone uh, comfortably, and it's endearing. And see it as critical and harmful, yeah. because, of course, there's nothing funny about perfect human beings. Because there's, not- a brilliant, there's a brilliant second-order thing there, which is if we weren't friends, I couldn't say this to you. Therefore, it's a a way of proving friendship. It's very complicated, the woke question, because what I always try and do with it is, it's obviously, as you said yourself, it's ultimately well-intentioned. You don't want to upset people. And certain aspects of it which annoy the right seem to me actually perfectly reasonable. So take the example of trigger warnings, okay? Actually, trigger warnings, if you're about to produce a drama which involves highly distressing, let's say, sexual offences, okay, that could be, if unexpected, deeply upsetting to five people in the audience. And so warning them in advance, I'll tell you the funniest thing, because we can be incredibly blind to the offence we might unintentionally cause. The most extraordinary case in point was I used to download television programmes to my laptop and watch them on flights, okay? And whatever I'd recorded on my Skybox, I'd watch it on the flight. I'm not remotely frightened of flying, don't have any fear of it at all. And I used to sit on a plane with a 17-inch laptop screen watching air crash investigation, right? <laughs> and it was, only, it was only when someone else commented, they said, look, a third of the people sitting behind you are absolutely terrified, and you've got a screen showing effectively, you know, a 747 cargo plane plowing into a mountain and bits yeah. of mangled wreckage all over the ground. Genuinely, it hadn't occurred to me there was anything possibly distressing about doing this. And so the trigger warning actually isn't a bad idea. And yet right-wing people sometimes get hugely angry about it, and I don't really see why. Yeah, couldn't agree more, because if you warn people in advance it's yeah. going to be bad language, then people who don't like bad exactly. language yeah. aren't going to watch, so no one gets upset. And the people who find it funny or yeah. important for the veracity of the scene are not going to be disappointed. So you warn people, that's fair. Now, I don't have a problem with my stage shows, because everyone who comes to see my stage show 
has consciously put down a bit of money to buy a ticket. And they don't do that if they don't like what you do. Yes. So I have no problem with those audiences at all. But I think warnings, whatever sort of warnings, so this is going to be disrespectful about organized religion or something like that. Good idea. Then no one's offended. Yeah, I think, look, it's all about context. I think in principle, there's nothing problematic personally about bad language, unless it's being sort of brutally, brutally offensive. But all equally, you put in a warning, those who don't like it don't have to participate. And it's impossible to legislate. I, I tried to work this out, which is why are some disgusting jokes just disgusting? And why are some other disgusting jokes also very funny? And I can't explain it. And I suddenly realised I have the same thing, which is like, I watch quite a lot of programmes about serial killers. It's a, it's a massive genre, okay? By the way, mostly female in its viewing, surprisingly, which you wouldn't have predicted. And there are some serial killers where I go, oh, hey, come on, kids, there's a documentary about Fred and Rose West, and we'll watch that. Perfectly fine. And then there'll be someone like Ed Gein, or it might be the Green River Killer. I'm not going to watch that. Absolutely disgusting. Now, the point is, they're all disgusting, okay? I cannot make sense of how I draw a line in my own brain between serial killers it's okay to watch a documentary about, which logically should be none of them, okay? And those which I just find repellent. It makes no sense to me, but for some reason there is that line. If you yeah. warn people that they can make a choice or they, they can, make can a choice. look and yeah. in the first two minutes say, oh, no, I don't want this, or for some reason, I know what you mean, because... Bad people who are conscious of their own badness and amused by it are strangely attractive. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Bad people who have no idea that they're bad are utterly repellent. Yeah, I made so a similar the, distinction today, which is about the invasion, which is to say uh, that you can only get away with being evil if you're really, really competent. Okay. <laughs> And it's a tragic thing, That's but it's right. sort yeah, of, yeah. sort of. There's a bit of truth in it, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, so you know, the second, the second you blunder. That's it. No good. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. If you're bad, then you're conscious of what you're doing. But if you're delusional, that's a good defence. Well, if you're well, incompetent like Putin, you just box yourself further into a corner, becoming increasingly evil to cover arguable incompetence in some way. I know. Unbelievable. That's the it? other problem. I want to just come back to Dave Trott, unless before we digress further into Putin. Dave has actually been on this podcast with me, and he has a very strong view about creativity, certainly in the ad industry. I mean, he would have a view that advertising today, let's call it the creative world, just to bring it more broad, is filled with too many people, too clever, overconfident for their own good, full of narrow-minded, university-educated public school kids who know how to structure an essay, but have little idea about creativity. So, I mean, you're both Oxbridge public school products. I mean, is there some truth in that? Or they've got the wrong talent? uh, Absolutely. And it's because you can write a good essay without being the slightest bit creative. I mean, if you look at most of the writing in British newspapers, for example, very little of it is creative, but sometimes there's a very useful examination of possibilities. It doesn't require creativity at all. You you might even argue that the education process is anti-creative in that, I'm not talking about maths here or, you know, genuinely meritocratic things, but in some ways it fosters the art of overgeneralization. And to some extent, oversimplification. It rewards you for saying the cause of this war was X, when the messy reality was, of course, the truth isn't always very essay worthy. 
to be absolutely honest. Well, people you know, the- value clarity so much. And it's nice to have it at the end of a process, but not at the beginning. I mean, Einstein said that muscular sensations were part of his thinking process. And once you start saying there's no such thing as right and wrong, black and white, there's always, but people don't like that. I remember having making a Jewish friend very upset once by telling him that at least Hitler was nice to his dog. That uncovers a very interesting uh, kind of duality about extremely evil people that after murdering people, they go back and play dominoes with their kids or whatever. I can actually beat this because for very complicated reasons, Rudolf Hess was always very nice to my mum. <laughs> <laughs> Um, You have to explain this. I have to explain it. She grew up in Monmouthshire, where Hess was imprisoned in Abergavenny in what was formerly a mental asylum. And the guards took him on long walks to visit the border castles like Grosmont and White Castle. And occasionally he'd come face to face with my mum, who was going home from school, and always smile and give a cheery wave. And then my mum would go and hide in the hedge, effectively. (laughs) Um, But he was totally amicable. What is interesting about life is paradox. And the great danger is binary thinking, that this is good and this is bad, that this group is all good and this group is all bad, and that this kind of behavior is always bad. And also, if you come into contact with people from the other group, you're somehow defiled or polluted by the association. Well, it's the desire for purity, isn't it? And when you want to be more pure than you actually are, because we're not very pure because we're human beings, then what happens is you do denial and projection. You deny certain things in yourself and you project them into the other side and see them then. And once you're in a paranoid confrontation, like we are at the moment with uh, China and Russia and apparently India, there's very little hope for any kind of resolution because everyone's pretending they're all good or all bad. Are we drifting a little into sort of Ian McGilchrist territory? We talk about black or white binary decisions because it strikes me this question of whether very analytical people are less good at creativity. There's perhaps a sense of the absurd or of multicolor, of meaning, nuance, of bigger picture come far more from my right brain hemisphere than more sort of narrow beam, one dimensional left. I know you're both big fans of Ian, as I am myself, and I wonder how you sort of position his thinking in this creativity debate. I think the idea that he points out there's two different hemispheres and that they don't even look the same, which everyone assumes they're symmetrical and they're not. Despite the intense connection between the two of them, they do have two ways of seeing the world. And humans are at their best when they are in balance. And the people who are too dominated by the left hemisphere are very good at analytical stuff and very good at organizing things and exploiting things. But the people with the right hemisphere emphasis are much better at creativity and because they're good at context. And context gives things meaning. People often think that a word is wrong because it's the dictionary definition of the word. But if that word is spoken in irony, people are not firming it. They are criticizing. You see what I mean? If you don't understand irony and sarcasm, then you're missing everything because you just think it's all black and white. It's, and a, it's a classic Twitter advice to take a sentence out of context yes. and express outrage about it. And I always make the effort at least to investigate how that sentence was uttered and what the surrounding sentences were. What was the context? Yes. What was the context? Because that's the meaning. 
Yeah, and yeah, that's what it means. You can't extract something and say, you know, five words standing alone necessarily convey an unchanging meaning because it entirely depends how they're delivered and what came before and what comes afterwards. Well, you know, I was asked to speak at Cambridge University at the end of last year, and I, just before I was going down there to talk to them, and I was really looking forward to it, somebody got cancelled because they did a bad impersonation of Hitler making fun of Hitler. So they were blacklisted. Well, I did in Monty Python. I made fun of Hitler by playing Hitler. So I cancelled myself because I thought it was more dignified to cancel myself than to be cancelled at the last minute by somebody else. Well, you did it in 40 Towers as well. Was that the Minehead by-election, presumably? Was it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with Ron Vibbentrop. (laughs) (laughs) And Minehead and Minecamp. There were a whole lot of jokes in. But the whole point is you've got to look at things because they're more... more complex than binary thinking people want. But binary thinking people will say things like, well, yeah, Trump lies, but everybody lies. And that's a complete answer to Trump lying. Whereas you then have to say, yes, but there are degrees of lying. There are some people who lie here and there occasionally, largely to not hurt people's feelings, and others who lie all the time for their own personal advantage. There's a difference. And when you say, you know, everybody lies, that's binary. And this kind of thing allows these people to get away with ridiculous arguments. Yeah. I'm interested, actually, in how creativity is judged differently in your respective world. I think, you know, creative ideas seems to me more clinically judged in comedy writing. I suppose if the audience laughs, tick, it sort of is quite binary. I suppose in advertising, it feels more opaque. You can win lots of backslapping awards. Maybe your peers think you're rather smart, but often no one remembers the campaign. Well, sometimes, of course, campaigns enter the public consciousness and one imagines it has an impact on sales. But I wonder whether you obviously have to define success rather differently in advertising versus when you're writing scripts. I think they have one thing in common, which is the very best comedy and the very best advertising is repeatedly watchable. And actually, that's always a criterion. Actually, for films as well, it's interesting, which is I've never had the urge to watch Citizen Kane a second time. I've watched it. Don't don't have the urge to sit down and watch it again. But there are about 20 or 30 films which are just endlessly rewatchable. So it's two o'clock in the morning. You already own the film on DVD. You've got an early morning meeting the next morning. You see the (laughs) film on the television and you still stay up until 2.30 in the morning to watch the end. And Life of Brian, actually, I mean, the Python oeuvre, along with Hitchcock, scores incredibly highly there, doesn't it, in terms of rewatchability? Yeah, people who love Python love Python, and, and yeah. the literal-minded don't get it. You see, I want the, one of the great dangers in religion is you get the literal-minded people who take things, what is said, literally, and then it becomes sort of legalistic. And this is what happens to churches. People start basically with mystics saying wonderful, interesting things. And then the people who join at the start are fascinated by these people and think they're wonderful. By the time you get to the fifth generation, people are joining it because it's quite a good thing to be and you probably help you to get ahead in your job. And at that point, the power seekers get to the top. And at that point, they start organizing it on power considerations and nothing to do with the original teaching. I mean, if you look at the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, that is all about power and nothing about Christ's teaching. 
So organized religion, I think, is often threatening, and the very most threatening people are the ones who are actually literal-minded because they're so sure they're right, and yet they're drawing lines between carefully graduated. So everything in human life is basically explicable on a spectrum. It's interesting, isn't it, to bring us back to McGilchrist, the left hemisphere demands absolute certainty, and the right hemisphere exists to understand context, ambiguity, and the unexpected, in fact. As yes. well. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you look at the financial crash of 2008, is a very, it seems to me a very good example over left brain dominant thinking, overconfidence, oversimplification of models, no nuance, no context, no sense for ambiguity, as you say. And then you see the result. I mean, of course, many. Well, the, 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 the left hemisphere tends to focus in very, very narrowly and ask for yes. complete precision and then miss the context. The left hemisphere is very good within a narrow range, but has massive blind spots. Yes, yeah. that's very good. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, if you're doing a maths problem, you don't need the right hemisphere. <laughs> you know what I mean? This train leaves Barnsley at this time. Those kind of things. We've got all the facts and you've got all the measurements. But in life, you normally don't have all the facts and you don't have all the measurements. I know, I know what you mean about maths, although I would suggest some mathematicians might challenge that, that there is some element of creative oh, thinking in maths. The high end of sort of oh, yeah, Fermat's last high. theorem. When you yeah. get really high. Yeah. yeah. At the top of any profession, any kind of profession, Tennis playing is the top people are creative because being creative is no more than having ideas about how to do things better. On the life of Brian, I mean, I think the issue with the church is that maybe there's a huge fear of challenging themselves or challenging their own rigid beliefs. And that sort of brings out this rather sort of belligerent view. I wondered whether you found all the backlash from life of Brian amusing or frustrating. I think it's fair to say I just couldn't take most of it seriously. Yeah. Now, there were so many Christians who saw what we were doing, were making fun of the way that some people follow religions. We weren't at any moment making fun of Christ's teaching because at the beginning, there you have Christ actually delivering the Beatitudes, most beautiful uh, stuff, moral stuff ever delivered. But the humor comes from the fact that people at the back can't hear and think uh, cheesemakers, was it? Because uh, they can't hear yeah. peacemakers. Uh, actually, the makers of dairy products in general. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I think yeah. the moment that people get literal-minded and they take meanings from a dictionary, they're completely blind to irony and they have no context for their thinking. And um, yet they are so sure of themselves because that's the clarity that makes them feel confident. I think great confidence of that kind is actually the product of great insecurity. And the most secure people have opinions, but can vary the opinions because they're just opinions. Other people have their opinions as sort of props to their personality. So if you criticize any of them, you're criticizing them because their opinions are part of them. Well, it reflects a huge amount of our political debate of the last decade, whether it's about Brexit or left or right politics. It's extremely polarized. The middle has completely fallen out and we become identified and insulted indeed when someone doesn't share us the same view. It's gone completely crazy. Yes, I voted Remain, but actually became almost a lever after the result because I simply thought of the Remainer obsessives, you can't be that certain about anything. That's exactly right. Their, their degree I, of certainty I, was utterly absurd. 
I remember Pat Palin, dear old Michael Palin, appearing on Andrew Marr, and they referred to me as a strong supporter of Exit. No, I was a very mild supporter of Exit. I thought the whole thing was incredibly complicated, and I didn't know, but I thought it was better to have an appreciation of an important, you know, of a foreign policy. I thought that the EU, which has now stepped up to the line in the most splendid way of Ukraine, I thought they were not firm enough in their foreign policy, and we do be better to be free of their foreign policy. But I didn't know because it was such a hugely complicated business. But what I've noticed is that people who are very, very confident fool stupid people because stupid people look at them and think, well, if they're that confident, they must be right. Yeah. Whereas actually their confidence is arising out of stupidity because they're not aware of all the alternatives. I must say that there's a strand which runs through so many of my conversations on this podcast is about our desire as human beings to seek certainty, to try and allocate risk probability to every action in our life. And unfortunately, it's impossible. It's always interesting in the pandemic, the way that we refer to the scientists as the science and the men in white coats who would give us clear answers. And of course, in the end, it's impossible. And it's the same with yeah, Brexit. They didn't but- have enough evidence. They hadn't been studying it long yeah. enough. For example, if you do not have a lockdown, people do not go on behaving as they would have done because they're frightened and many people lock down voluntarily. If you'd allowed garden parties, equally, many of those garden parties would have turned into inside events when it got a bit cold in the evening. So in other words, people respond to information in completely different ways. And unless you have a completely totalitarian regime, you can't simply impose scientific recommendations directly on people without asking actually the oblique consequences might be. I think as it happened, the government's nudge unit had advised them to basically scare the shit out of everyone as their tactic. And I think the fear was absolutely weaponized on reflection, yeah. I think more so in the UK. Yes, the only, thing, the only thing I did say in defense of this, okay, is that it wasn't only about death. I would go to quite long lengths not to have very bad... I've only had really bad flu twice or three times in my life. I've had a lot of colds, but what is properly flu, I've only maybe had three times in my life. I go to a lot of lengths to avoid that, never mind the death possibility. I want to make one one point rudely. If you look at science... There's a huge respect for science, and then the more closely you look at it, it becomes a little bit dubious. I think mm-hmm. essential reading is Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, because people become enormously attached to their theory. And uh, Max Planck, who really gave the foundation for quantum physics, once said, science seems to progress one funeral at a time, because people don't want to switch theory, because it might actually invalidate some of the work that they've done. But that's what happens when people become invested in their opinions, when their opinions become part of them. So look, with that, Rory and John, let me thank you both for such a memorable conversation. I can't think of many individuals beyond you two who talk with such uh, humour, clarity, eloquence about the creative process. And we furthermore, are very, very brilliant. You're bloody brilliant, aren't you? Yeah. And, Likely yeah. more brilliant than Rory, but he's in my class. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I, 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 I can retire on that. You can retire on that. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still clambering a few rungs below, clearly. But nevertheless, all I can say to you is thank you. It's been enormous fun. And thank you for being here and having a natter with me. What a huge pleasure, absolute joy, as always. All the best. Well, that was a roller coaster ride. We definitely covered what it means to be creative, or indeed not. I mean, there can't be too many better practitioners than John and Rory to teach us the secrets and their track records speak for themselves. I hope you found this conversation as much of a treat to listen to as it was for me to put it together. I mean, three-way podcasts can be chaotic, but I think this one was worth the risk. I hope you agree. 
Next time I'm talking to 42 Courses founder, creative spark, educationalist and all-round lovely human being, Chris Rawlinson. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the conversation with John and Rory today, do give me a review on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts on and subscribe at aloadofbs.substack.com where you'll find all my articles and a lot of great rewards for being part of the community. Till next time.